CBS Friday. TV's hottest show is Fire Country. I'm not a hero. I'm in orange for a reason. They're taking 12 months off your sentence. You're free. Lady. With a special epic season finale. Now that I'm out, I need something to get me up in the morning. You are a firefighter. You used to be. That will be unforgettable. In the name of your life's happiness, go get your girl. She's getting married tomorrow. Says, when do you let anything get in the way of what you want? The Fire Country season finale, Friday, 9, 8 central on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome into the Otzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prame, Eric Scopel with me on the podcast as always. And it's that time. It's Wednesday. It's mailbag day. We've got a lot to get to. We've got a lot of submissions from questions to talk about from Oregon football, Oregon football recruiting. Maybe we'll dive into other areas as well uh, from a basketball perspective. Um, but first, I want to remind you guys that it's always a good time to sign up for DuckTerritory.com. You can always get that $1 for your first month promo. Uh, but we have rolled out our Thanksgiving Black Friday holiday promo for the next couple of days. And this runs through the end of the month. You have until November 30th, uh, I believe, 9 p.m. Pacific time to pick this up. 75% off your annual membership. That's a billing of one time of $26.85, 75% off, $2.24 a month when you, you know, stretch that $26.85 out over 12 months. You save a huge chunk of change. Obviously, our month-to-month rate is $9.95. Uh, this is considerably cheaper than that. So if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy uh, the site, and you like our free work that we've done and you want to get the full experience, you want to be a VIP member, you want to join our message board community, this is your cheapest and one of the easiest ways to support this podcast to ensure that, that you can subscribe and allow Eric and I to keep doing this. For $26.85 for an entire year, 12 months, you get our membership to DuckTerritory.com. That helps support the podcast, which Eric and I do for free. Uh, this will go until November 30th. So you got a couple days. I highly though suggest take advantage of this right away. Do, do it right now. Uh, a lot of people have, a lot of people uh, have joined the site in previous years when we've run this promo and they've stuck with us since then. Uh, Oregon, from a recruiting standpoint, they are a top 10 class in the country. They are going after their best class in, in school history from football recruiting you won't want to miss all the inside scoops there. Men's and women's basketball kicks off their seasons this week. Don't want to miss this, the, the, our coverage there. And as always, football. It's We're in the middle of football season, 3-0, trying to get to 4-0, playing the Oregon State Beavers this weekend in Corvallis. You can read all our full coverage of that and the rest of the season as well with your membership to DuckTerritory.com. $26.85, 75% off an annual membership. Okay, Got that out of the way. Uh, huge savings there, Eric. But nonetheless, we've got six questions, mailbag, and a wide ranging of topics I tease at the beginning of football, basketball, and everything in between. Let's start here because this is probably the question on a lot of Oregon fans' minds from at RR Feature SPDX. Is Noah Sewell returning against Oregon State? 
And for those listening that haven't seen the news, you're probably going like, what, what kind of a question is that? There's no way that guy's coming back. They carted him off. It looked like his leg bent the wrong way. And yet we have a, we're not going to curse on this program, but we have kind of a WTF moment. That's an abbreviation. You know what that stands for? Mario Cristobal on Monday, Noah looks good. He practices today. He looks normal to me. I, I, I don't think anybody really expected that after we saw him get carted off. Uh, certainly, I think we were on the record on Monday being like, it probably doesn't look great that he's going to play anytime soon. He's back at practice. I don't think that's a guarantee he plays against Oregon State. Um, I think there are some video that Matt that we saw from Instagram yeah. of him. Uh, one, of, one of the uh, Oregon assistant coaches, um, Don Johnson Jr., he's on the recruiting department side. Uh, he recently, or he does this basically every day. Uh, he goes to Oregon football practice and stands on the sideline and it's kind of like a recruiting tool and he goes live on Instagram every morning and kind of shows the ducks at practice in various forms. And the last two days, uh, as Oregon has warmed up for practice, we've seen Noah Sewell out there running without a brace, without really anything on his leg, ankle, lower leg, whatever you want to describe it, uh, out there in full pads. And after that, Cristobal has, has come out and said, yeah, he looks good to go and seems ready to, to, to play for Oregon this weekend. It, it, it's mind-boggling. Uh, you asked Isaac Slade Matuatia, and I kind of laughed when you asked it, but it's, it's, it had to be said, like, is he human? <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. I got texts from so many people, and I'm sure those watching the game on TV felt the same way of like, oh, that looks terrible. Like, oh, there goes his season. Like, and then it was just – it was very, I think, disappointing because he had been – so impactful early on and Noah says for him to come back the next day and practice and act like nothing happened we're happy it wasn't too serious we're just grateful he's back with us like I, I mean this is really kind of mind-boggling to me that this guy and we know the genetics are incredible um, but it really looked like if it wasn't a ligament tear in his knee that it was at least like a significant ankle injury like right I mean that's kind of like he kind of grabbed down there like maybe he fractured something in his ankle or, or broken ankle or sprained it really, really bad. And for him to be back practicing in some capacity is just, I'm stunned. I really am. I, I, I this, this happens every now and then where it looks like a player is going to be out for a while, but, and they aren't, but like for, a, a, for him to be carted off and for the video replay to be that kind of like, oof. And then a couple of days later for him to be like, yeah, no, he's back. He's practicing. He looks normal. It, it's just like, Maybe he's not human. And again, these these Sewell, the Sewell genetics strike again. Incredible that it seems like if Noah Sewell doesn't play this week, he'll be back at least sometime in the next couple of weeks. Again, I don't think we're not going to have full clarity until Saturday or sorry, Friday, I should say Friday afternoon in Corvallis when uh, Matt and I hopefully both are up there. If not both of us, I'll be up there um, before the game kind of reporting upon his status. But what seemed like I would have said on Monday, if you asked me this question, was going to be like 0%. Now it feels like it's 50-50, maybe a little better than that. Yeah, it, it's a big deal for Oregon if they can get him back. I think it's safe to say I think he is probably Oregon's most physical linebacker. I don't know if he's the best. Uh, I think Isaac Slade Matuatia is probably up there um, at that spot. But – He's certainly the most physical and the most disruptive, I think, linebacker that Oregon has. And every week, the gap between him and Isaac get a, gets a little bit slower, or slimmer, I should say. 
Um, I, I, I think Noah is getting better and better each and every week that he's playing. And if they don't have him on Saturday, I think I'm expecting him to play. I, I, I'm not reporting that. I'm not, you know, I'm hearing it's, it's going in the right direction, but I, I'm expecting him to play. I'm kind of guessing a little bit there. It's your hunch. But, but they need him. Like, I, I, against who they're playing on Saturday and, or Friday, I keep saying Saturday, uh, on Friday, Jamar Jefferson, the best running back in the conference, like statistically at least. And it's not even close. And so if, if what we've seen from Morgan the first three weeks of the year, they need all hands on deck. And so I, I expect if Sewell can be out there, he's going to try and play. Oh, 100%. I don't think there's any question. If he's cleared medically for this, he's going to play. And, and, they, and, and as you said, Matt, they need him to play. Like, this is not a we can, we can take this slowly sort of thing. The difference between Sue on the field and not on the field, I think, is pretty significant. And um, I think, especially in a game where you're going to see Oregon State try to pound it between the tackles right at that part of the defense, yep. you sure as heck want him there. You really want him there. Best case scenario is he plays. And if he is playing, He's at a, close to 100% as possible, and he's able to make some plays that slow down Jamar Jefferson. And, and, like, we don't have to go too far into this, but, like, I, I do think, and statistically it says it, I think just based upon what I've watched on tape, Jamar Jefferson is probably the best running back in this conference, not on Oregon's team. I still think I – mean, I really do think Sergey Verdell, when he is playing at his best, is as good, if not better, than Jefferson and probably the best running back in this conference. But a player not on Oregon's team – Jamar Jefferson is fantastic at running back, and that's what's going to make this game difficult is Oregon's biggest weakness right now defensively, from my perspective, has been their ability to make plays in space in the run game, and they're going to go against the player in the conference that's the most difficult in those scenarios. And so this is a tough matchup for Oregon, and that's why I still think this game, even with Oregon having clearly the more talented roster and a better record, it's going to be a tough matchup because Oregon State, what they do best is what Oregon is struggling at the most defensively. All right, second question from at Moore underscore 44. Is it just me, or do the snaps from Alex Forsyth seem slow and lacking crispness? It appears to me a direct snap with pace, not lob, is critical for timing in the RPO system. Any chance Jackson Light comes in next year and takes over as a true freshman? Hashtag odds and audibles. I will say, <clears throat> sorry, Ooh, something in my throat there. I will say, before we jump into what Mario Cristobal said on Monday, because he did address this, that I agree, and I agreed on rewatch. It's something I probably should have noted on Monday's show of like, it, and I don't think it was quite as bad in previous weeks as it was. I don't know, maybe it wasn't as, I just at least didn't recognize it, but there were, especially early in that game, it didn't seem like those snaps were getting to Tyler Shuck very quickly. And, and Demore is right in terms of, you need the timing to be precise and quick, and you have to get the ball to the quarterback as fast as possible for the RPO to work, or else you're giving away valuable time for the defense to break through and make a play and, and force those decisions to be even more, you know, kind of snap judgment. Um, and so I, I agree. I think there's some validity to that question. Um, here's what Mario Cristobal said, and then I'll turn over to Matt. Cristobal said on Monday, I think, I think we more need it cleaned up. I think a couple might've been a hair slow, but overall we've been pretty much on point with the snaps. Matt, do you agree? Like, is this something that you noticed too, or, or do you think this is kind of not a big deal? I noticed it in the game. I also don't think it's a, a, a huge issue right now. Like, 
it has it, it, Alex Forsyth is consistently snapping. I feel like on on point. Um, I'd, I'd agree on that too. Yeah. Like, I, it's not an issue where it's like, gosh, every possession there's at least one or or two bad snaps, and I, we're not there yet. And so I look at this and think, look, like you're gonna play. You're not gonna play perfect every single down that you're out there. You're just not. And against UCLA, it was maybe a little bit of an off day for, for Alex Forsyth, but I don't know if it's necessarily an issue yet where this is trending where, boy, they got to get this figured out. This is really holding up the offense. This is really slowing things down. I mean, Oregon still scored 28 points in that football game via the offense. Uh, they, they still were able to have big plays, big explosions, and this is still an offense that through three weeks of the year – from a conference, from a Pac-12 conference perspective, uh, where they're second in the conference in scoring at, at 38.7 points per game. Um, and from a touchdown perspective, they've scored the most touchdowns. Uh, UCLA is second with 16. As, or their, UCLA and Oregon are tied with 16 touchdowns. So I, I look at this and think the offense is still the best offense in the conference. Um they're still putting up good numbers. It's not time just yet to kind of get too concerned. Now, could Jackson like show up next year as a true freshman and take Alex Forsyth's job? No, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, I, I will be uh, – the only way I could see that happening is if there's mass departures along the offensive line and Oregon deems, hey, you know what? We need Forsyth to play somewhere else. And then Jackson like could come in and, and play as a true freshman. I just don't see Forsyth getting beaten out by a true freshman. Yeah, it's one thing to suggest that the sna- a few snaps have been not perfect, which I think has been the case. I, I would have copped to that. I agree. And I, I'm, I'm kind of with Matt, too. And like, has it impacted a couple of plays? Probably. Is it the reason the offense wasn't 100% effective on Saturday? No. Is the offense terrible because of Alex Forsythe? Absolutely not. Um, but the suggestion, this is kind of the same one we deal with so frequently of like this star recruit is going to come in and just take a starting job from a veteran player is kind of a, again, it's just, it's not going to happen. And as much as I think Jackson Light is going to be a really good player at Oregon and probably. And so do I. And probably maybe a three or four year starter, right? I mean, because Alex Forsythe will be technically a, a redshirt junior next year again, although really he's a senior if you want to look at it from an eligibility perspective, just because of this frozen year here. Um, Forsythe could, in theory, leave after this year. Not going to happen, I don't think. Could leave after next year. That seems more pro- plausible. Could also come back and play another year afterwards. But either way, like, I, best case scenario is probably Jackson Light spends a year learning behind Alex Forsythe figures some things out, gets that veteran experience, which is always important for these young centers. I mean, Forsyth really talked about the value of working with Jake Hansen for several years before he got to this point. Um, and so, like, that's probably the most likely scenario here is you look at, okay, 2021, Jackson Light enrolls. He's the backup and the heir apparent to Alex Forsyth. Forsyth is either going to be gone after 2021 or 2022. And whenever that transition takes place, it, it does likely – I say likely because it's not like there aren't other players kind of waiting the wings for this position. Um, Jonathan Demeth comes to mind. Uh, Dawson Yaramillo is another player. Maybe I know Ryan Walks the same age as Alex Forsythe, but that one's probably less likely. Logan Sagapalu is another one. 
So it's not like Jackson Light walks in here and it's just like he's immediately the guy. And I know he's a really highly regarded prep recruit, but again, you have to be realistic about this. And, and I think to expect a true freshman to come in and take a player who, again, isn't an awful football player and, and who, by all accounts, is the kind of the leader of the offensive line's job, that seems like a, a reach to me like, like it does to Matt. Third question and final before the break from at Benjamin Smucker. Any ideas why the defense stayed in nickel when they were getting gashed by the run? It seemed like Jamal Hill was often lined up as a linebacker anyway, so why not put Adrian Jackson out there instead? He's almost as athletic, as athletic but 30 pounds heavier. It's kind of an interesting question here, and I think from a schematic perspective, there seems to be some validity of this, of if UCLA was going to be intent in running the football, and they sure were. I think they ran it almost – I think they ran it over 50 times. I think it was 54 rushes in that game. Why did you not make some changes from a personnel perspective? And um, and I, I know I don't I, – I think the thing you have to realize, too, is that this is like – this is their base defense. This is where they feel most comfortable. They did adjust, and if you watched – in the second half in particular, I thought Adrian Jackson was out there a fair amount on passing plays. But I, I also think you have to realize that Jackson, like, and this is something Andy Avalos, and I think, Matt, you might ask the question on Monday, of, like, his role is, or maybe it was to Mario Cristobal, I don't remember. Yeah. But just, like, he's still kind of coming along here. And even though he shows these huge moments of these boom, wow moments, he's not a finished product yet, and he still needs to make some strides before he can really be thrown out there. Yeah. Um, and Andy Avalos also said that, you know, it was difficult to sub because the tempo UCLA because of tempo. And he said they needed to do a better job of ensuring that they had the right guys on the field, but that if UCLA was subbing, that Oregon was subbing. And if UCLA wasn't subbing, they weren't subbing because then all of a sudden your defense isn't getting set or you get called for having 12, 13 guys on the field. And that put Oregon in some difficult positions where they maybe didn't have the best personnel out there to defend against what they were seeing. So like, I don't know, part of me, part of me looks at this and part of me looks at, excuse me, I had a cough. Um, Part of me looks at this and think, you know, Jamal Hill is still growing. He's getting better. Um, I mean, he was in position multiple times to make big, big tackles and just missed. Um, is, is Adrian better than Jamal Hill in pass coverage? No, he's not. And you also have to factor in with substitutions uh, as well as Oregon was playing um, a UCLA offense where they quite honestly didn't know what to expect. I mean, Andy Avalos kind of joked, uh, on Monday about how it's like, yeah, I thought I was done dealing with the triple option when I left the Mountain West <laughs> Conference, but apparently yeah. not. And, you know, I can't recall UCLA running a ton of triple option in Chip Kelly's previous two years, let alone this season. Uh, I don't think it was out there all, a whole bunch. And so all of a sudden you get thrown, you know, some stuff you haven't seen before. You You put it best you go to your base defense what you're most comfortable with and you roll with that so that you know maybe you're not best suited but it's your best unit out there to, to, to you know and then you just kind of start working on your adjustments as the game goes on well i think another thing here and this is probably a small point but it's a point that joe moorhead made talking about tyler shuck about why anthony brown hasn't seen the field 
Well, Jamal Hill's a very key part of this defense, and that nickel position is a very key part of this defense. It's a play, place that Javon Holland was at last year. And you want to give as many reps and opportunities to Jamal Hill, who the staff is clearly extremely high on. And I think he's going to be, and already showing signs, I think, of developing into an outstanding football player. And I think they think similar to Adrian Jackson, but clearly they feel that Jamal Hill is a player they really want to work towards and build on, build upon towards the future because they know what's coming on with, you know, they know what's going up, you know, in the secondary, the next couple of years, who all they, they're going to lose with Diamond Lenore after this year gone with Nick Pickett after this year gone with not a whole lot of more time with Bennett Williams and Jordan Happel, even though they both just got here. Um, Hill's going to be one of these kind of premier cornerstone players in the secondary. And, you know, at a certain point you have a little bit of trial by fire. And even if he's not playing perfect, and I think everybody would cop to the fact that he hasn't, it's worth giving him opportunity to, to improve. And I think they also want to give Adrian Jackson an opportunity to improve too. I just think for him, he almost seems like he's kind of singular in what he does right now. And that's primarily somebody on passing downs who can in space defend a running back out of the backfield or really get after the passer. And that's where we've seen him have some success thus far this season. All right, that's three questions in. Let's uh, take a quick break, come back. We'll wrap up the show with our final three questions that we got here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Every sport has their big, juicy controversy. Boxing has the Mike Tyson ear bite. Cycling has Lance Armstrong. Baseball has its steroid era. Curling has... Broomgate. It's a story of broken relationships, houses divided, corporate rivalry, and a performance-enhancing broom. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate. Available now. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pram, Eric Scopa with me as always on the show. And before we dive in to the second half of this episode, I want to remind you guys, 75% off right now on a VIP membership, uh, just under $26 for the entire year. Uh, that That's ridiculous. Excuse me, just over tw- under $27. $26.85 is the total amount. 75% off jump on that until because it could go away quickly. Fourth question from at Henry Stern recognizing there's no single answer to this question, but do you think the uneven performance on each side of the ball are largely problems with scheme or players? Hashtag go ducks. It's an interesting question. I think it's one that is kind of hard to, identify because I think it can be both. I think it can be both in part because, and this is something that you you just have to acknowledge and tip of the cap and but something that I think Matt acknowledged earlier and and what we've seen said from Oregon offensive and defensive coaches this week is that UCLA is a well-coached football team. 
Washington State and Stanford, same thing. And they provided some looks that Oregon hadn't seen or maybe hadn't expected to see. And so, yeah, there were instances where, and they've said as much, that they were, I don't want to say scrambling, but that maybe they were kind of caught off guard and, and that provided an advantage to the opponent. At the same time, I think for the most part, I don't think Oregon, especially on offense, has been put at a disadvantage because of the scheme they're running. In fact, I think quite the opposite. So um, I think, you know, and, and again, this is nuanced. And like you said, there's no single answer. There isn't a simple answer here either. But like, I think, I think it's probably a little bit of both. This is a very inexperienced roster. And some of the teams they're playing have a lot of veteran guys. Like UCLA's front yesterday, yesterday, I should say Saturday, a lot of older veteran guys, some guys with some Sunday potential there. I think the running issues had a lot to do with just UCLA's personnel played better than Oregon's personnel at the line of scrimmage. I think defensively, it's difficult to prepare for a quarterback like Chase Griffin, who literally hasn't played at this level in an offense with a coach who's clearly Oregon fans can't pretend that they don't know that Chip Kelly is a really, really good football coach, a really good X's and O's coach, and that he can draw some things up. I think Oregon was at a bit of a disadvantage because, you know, Torian Thompson Robinson didn't play um, in this game. So I, mean, I think it, it definitely is a little bit of both. I won't say that the players certainly aren't perfect. Um, and the coach is certainly not perfect either. And, and Mario Cristobal has the one, been the one to kind of take responsibility and saying, hey, it needs to be on me to be better. I think that's fair. I also think there have been some instances where Oregon's guys have just not played very well, especially defensively in space, where Oregon's offensive line have not picked up blocks or have just been beaten by better or more physical players at the point of attack. So I know that's not a direct answer, but this isn't a question that like really has a direct answer. And I can't sit here and say like, it's 92% the player's 8% scheme or give some sort of percentage. I just don't think that's really a realistic approach. Matt, do you have... I think it was like, a combination you, of it all. Right, like, exactly, right? Like, I look at this and think, very late notice, an entirely different style of quarterback got thrown out there for Oregon to prepare for. UCLA ran a lot of things on offense that they didn't really show a ton in terms of on film, you know, leading up to this game. So Oregon was at a disadvantage in which they were preparing for someone that they had no idea what to, what to expect. He had never really saw significant action before. I think he maybe played one game and attempted one pass in his career before that. Um, he made his first career start. So this was like his first game at, at the college level. It was a, was a redshirt freshman, I think, last year. And then um, they didn't know about that until basically, what, Friday? Um, that, yeah. that he was potentially not playing. And then um, you also go up against, look, like you mentioned it, Chip Kelly was revered as, you know, a game. He changed college football, like when he was at Oregon because of his coaching style. It's not like all of a sudden he just forgot how to coach. Like you could argue his decisions and what they're doing in terms of scheme but it's not like he doesn't have these great ideas sitting up in his head. Like uh, those are still there. And we saw some of that. And then you also have to factor in, you know, on the other side of the football, UCLA's defense is good statistically across the board in all the key categories in the conference. They're one of the better schools in that area and they're experienced, they're older players and they're returning guys. And they, they ran, they saw some stuff on film that, Hey, we think we could take advantage of, of Oregon here. 
And Oregon's offense is, for the most part, highly inexperienced. A lot of these guys are making their second, third, first career starts in the game. And there are, you know, a lot of these guys are also underclassmen. And, you know, you played against an older team that's got experience, that's pretty good. And they sold out to stop the run. And Oregon was able to throw the football. And they, they walk away with the win. Like, it wasn't pretty. It pretty much confirmed, at least for you and I, that this isn't a playoff team right now. They could get there, but right now they're not. But they're also still a team good enough to win the conference and probably be the favorites right now. Yeah, I don't think there's a simple fix here. I don't think it's just one or the other. It's a lot of different contributing factors. And I, and I think ultimately I'm expecting this to get better and better over the next couple of weeks. But I, you know, I also have to, you have to be realistic about it. this is the, as Cristobal has said numerous times, this is the youngest roster in the country. They're up and downs with that. And the, the, the breaking in a new offensive scheme. And, and again, I don't think the offensive scheme part is really a, that big of an issue here. I, I think what Joe Moorhead is doing is, is super fun to watch. Um, and I think Tyler Shuck has been excellent in the RPO. Um, I know there have been some times where some of the decisions in terms of running it and, and, and leaving it in CJ or, or Travis dies belly has maybe been, looked like the wrong choice, but ultimately I think his ability to execute some of those have been great. I mean, two of the touchdowns he had pass wise on Saturday were off of really slick handiwork on those. The one to Travis die, you know, pulled it out, flipped it right to him, wide open touchdown, same kind of thing on the one to Hunter Campmeyer for the last touchdown where it were credit to UCLA's defense, great internal penetration. They stopped the run. He took a step and basically, because that safety had come up like that, Cantmore was wide open in the end zone for a touchdown. So um, still a lot of stuff I like, but certainly like it makes sense that this isn't going to be perfect. In a normal season, we've just reached the part of the season where you're now entering conference play, right? They've just finished the three-game non-conference stretch. Basically, in terms of the numerical part, obviously different competition. Um, we're, you, you typically wouldn't be expecting perfection now. But you are playing in a weird year where you're playing conference opponents who are better than typical non-conference opponents for games that mean more earlier on. So all of this is kind of – it makes sense. This is going to be a, a work in progress. doesn't mean you can't be frustrated and disappointed. It just means that there's, I think, more, more, more nuance to understand and expect. And I think a good question from Henry. All right, fifth question from at KMUR101. With C.J. Verdell almost certainly headed for the draft after this year, am I wrong for wanting to see a little more – of what our younger backs can do. Also, Dahina Pow Pow will win Oregon Women's Basketball Championship before she leaves. Go watch her tape and try to change my mind. She's that good. Um, two very different questions there, points from Muir there, but let's start with the first one um, since we're kind of talking football here, um, and then we'll, we'll jump into the women's part in a second after. But um, I think it's a decent question in theory of like, well, it's been all but one carry for the running backs have come from CJ and Travis die. And during the fall camp, Jim Astro was saying that this Oregon running back group, four to five of the guys were capable to start at other schools. I shouldn't say only, I think four of them have, have come from, because I forgot Cyrus also had a couple of carries in there. I was excluding him from my memory for some reason. And just thinking of Sean dollars and Trey Benson as the guys waiting in the wings. But the reality also is it's not like Oregon's had a ton of margin for error in these games. And it's not like there's been a lot of opportunity to work guys into the games when they're very, very competitive. And we, we've seen three fumbles, right, from running backs this season, or four, I should say, from yeah. running backs this season that have led to turnovers. 
do you feel like you're, is it a better choice to put out a Trey Benson or a Sean Dollars who have like a combined 10 carries in their collegiate careers and those are all dollars last season rather than to stick with these starting guys I mean like it it's one of those things where I feel like fans are like we need to see more Trey Benson and Sean, Sean Dollars but if Sean Dollars and Trey Benson came out and made some mistakes that cost them a game they'd be like why are we seeing these guys out there right like what have we seen to justify that those guys are better players than CJ Everdell, who's run for 2000 yards in his first two seasons or Travis Dye, uh, who's the only, I think the only one of like eight Pac-12 players to run for like 700 yards or more in the last two seasons. Uh, and it's currently in the Pac-12 still. Um, I, I, I don't think so. One, because games haven't been, you know, Oregon hasn't gone into a fourth quarter yet where it's basically assured that Oregon's going to win this football game. Um, that just hasn't happened yet. And and two, Mastro has also said, overridingly, he's going to ride the hot hand. He's going to go with the running back who is producing, and he's going to go to him time and time and time again. And C.J. Verdell, week, week one and week two, that was him. I mean, against Stanford, Verdell went – for 105 yards on the ground for a touchdown, he caught two passes for 30 yards. Against Washington State, 118 yards and a touchdown, five catches for 36 yards. Um, he's had two straight games with fumbles. And against UCLA, when it happened for the second time in two weeks and he fumbled, Mastro went to Travis Dye. And let's look at what, Mastro, what Travis Dye did against Washington State. Five runs, 54 yards, two catches, 87 yards, two touchdowns. You look at what Dye did against UCLA, 10 carries, 40 yards, by far the best performance at a running back perspective um, in that UCLA game. And then he had another touchdown catch, 32 yards against, against UCLA. So in three games, Travis Dye, or in, two, in the last two games, Travis Dye has caught three passes for 119 yards and three touchdowns. Like, and then he's also added 94 yards on 15 carries. Like he's the hot running back right now. So they're going with the guy who's got the hot hand. And that's, he said, Mastro, that's going to override everything is they're going to run with the guy that's producing. And for the last game and a half, it's Travis Dye. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you here. I think you got to stick with the hot hand. That's always been what they've said. And so far it's been those veteran guys. Next part of this question came here before we jump to our finale here. Um, I've said it before on the podcast. I expect Oregon to win a national championship in the next four years. Tina Powell's eligibility will be a part of that. So I'm, I'm not like, I don't think I need much convincing there. I, I mean, I think the reality is Oregon's roster is, is super talented. It's just going to get better. I'm really excited. Saturday's the first game against Seattle university tip off at 11 AM Pacific time. There's I'll, I'll, there are a couple opportunities to, to stream that game on the PAC 12 network. Um, I think for free, without having to have a subscription. Like I need to confirm that part as well, but um, it's going to be a really fun team to follow this year. And the upside is absolutely there. Like I, they have as many five stars, McDonald's, all Americans, whatever elite recruit quantifying measure you want to use than any other program in the country. And they're inexperienced this year. They're a young team. Literally none of these five stars, aside from Aaron Boley and Taylor, Mike sell have any collegiate experience and Mike sell hasn't played at Oregon yet. Um, it's going to be really, really fun to watch this group play. I'll also note, just for those that are women's basketball fans, I did have a really cool, uh, I think a really nice story on the site on Filipina Che, Philly Che as she goes, 
um, who's a six foot eight center from Canada. Uh, she can dunk. She's got a seven foot wingspan. She's left-handed. She's super skilled, kind of an under the radar prospect that just signed with Oregon um, over the weekend. So they're just going to get better and better. I agree on pow pow. I've been hearing for a while. I know I said it on a previous show, just the kind of caliber of player she is. It's going to be really, really fun to watch this women's program develop and to kind of prosper. And I, I really think there's a chance they win the conference this year. And I say that full well knowing that Stanford, Arizona, and UCLA all ranked ahead of them in AP poll. And then Oregon State's ripping at their heels. It's a really good conference. But I just don't think you can count them out with the talent and with the culture and coaching and just the overall program that they have in Eugene. It's a really special group. And for those that maybe haven't followed them in the past, this is an, I, don't, don't feel like you have to, just because you weren't around for the Sabrina and Eskio years that you can't jump in now. This is going to be another fun program to watch just develop over the course of the next couple of years. And certainly it starts this Saturday against Seattle. All right. Final question from at Harrison underscore. I was wondering your opinion on this debate I have been having with a friend. If you could have only the band or the Oregon duck at football games, regardless of COVID, what would you pick and why? Um, kind of a goofy question to send it out here, Matt, but. Band. I think it's easy. You don't, you're not, you don't think Puddles brings much to the table? Uh, he does, but the band provides noise. The band provides atmosphere that you can get a you you can hear even if you're not looking at him. Well, who's sitting on the back of the, the motorcycle then when they when they ride onto the field? It's not happening right now. Well, but but, but if, regardless of COVID, who would be on? Who would you put on the back there, Matt? No one's on the back. First of all, <laughs> that's something he would totally sign on for. Something <laughs> somehow distract him from his pregame routine. He's on a motorcycle. <laughs> oh. I think it's a funny question, and, and like we, I included it in part just because sometimes it's good to have a little levity, especially going into a rivalry week. But um, I'm with you; like the band is a crucial part of it. It's been really weird being at games with the pumped-in crowd noise and realizing there's no band playing all of these songs that all of us who've been going to these games for decades now have heard over and over again. It just kind of adds to the strange atmosphere of it, and. Certainly, like you also notice, hey, there's no mascot doing the push-ups after touchdowns, or there's no goofy dances or whatever they're incorporating. But I'm with you, Matt, in terms of like if I'm picking between the band, which adds a lot more. I think that adds a lot more to the atmosphere in any sporting event as opposed to the mascot. It's gonna do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you for listening to the show each and every week. Until we talk to you very, very soon. We'll talk to you later. You're listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks.